This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Let's circle back to pressure injuries. In 2020, we did an episode 49 called The Cost of Rot with a wound care nurse and expert from the hospital where the awakened walking ICU is. She provided incredible information that I learned a lot from. I have since come to really appreciate that it is not normal to have a hospital-acquired pressure injury rate of less than 1%, like in the awakened walking ICU. Most of our ICUs are really struggling even since COVID with hospital-acquired pressure injuries. And a lot of it comes down to compliance with the ABCDEF bundle. For example, I recently heard of a patient that was intubated for pneumonia and sepsis. She was automatically sedated, but two days later, they planned to do an awakening trial the next day. It didn't happen until four days after intubation, and they noted that she was, quote, too encephalopathic, unquote, to be extubated despite her successful breathing trial parameters. So she was resedated. The inconsistent SATs the next seven days seemed to have the same outcome until she was finally extubated 11 days after intubation, when she likely could have been extubated two to four days after intubation. Now, it's safe to assume that she was, quote, encephalopathic, likely from the delirium, which was greatly contributed to by the sedation, and that resedating in response to that encephalopathy or Better yet, delirium is like giving bacteria for the sepsis that she had. She was intubated because she was sedated at that point and sedated because she was intubated. This resulted in profound delirium as well as a deep tissue pressure injury on her coccyx. She never likely really had an indication for sedation. Questioning the need for sedation and providing true early mobility through really following the ABCDF bundle would have saved that patient immeasurable suffering and the ICU team so much work hassle, and expense. This likely cost the hospital tens of thousands of dollars as that pressure injury alone costs on likely, if it was a stage three, $8,371 to treat and likely about 10 extra days of ICU care that could have been avoided or minimized. Let's say conservatively conservatively, that each day in the ICU costs about $5,000. With that pressure injury, about roughly 10 extra days, that's an unnecessary $58,371 just in ICU costs. She then spent significant time in the medical floor and was at high risk of going to a care facility. So this episode I have with us Wound Care Karen, who is an absolute expert and even has her own podcast, all dedicated to wound care. Karen, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you on. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you so much, Kaylee. Now, one thing you might not know about me is I'm a Leo and we love to talk about ourselves. So you don't have to ask me twice. (laughs) My name is Karen Weidlich and I've been a registered nurse since 1994. Um, I had started out in long-term care and then I transitioned to acute care. I was doing ortho neuro uh, in a trauma hospital 
And then in 2003, I transitioned into wound care and I just fell in love with it. I definitely found my niche for sure. So I've been doing that ever since. Um, I'm currently a clinical nurse manager of an outpatient wound care department. And I am double board certified. I have my CHRN, which is a certified hyperbaric registered nurse. And I have my CWS, which means I'm a certified wound specialist. So um, I just love it. My passion is wound care, as you well know. Um, so a couple of years ago, I realized that I was doing the same patient teaching that I've been doing since day one. There's so many myths and misunderstandings out there regarding wound care. So that was the impetus for me to start uh, a social media campaign just about wound care awareness. And at first my audience was patients and their loved ones at home. And so I did funny videos on on YouTube and uh, Facebook. Um, and then um, as I got more feedback, then I started do, to do some for nurses also, and then sometimes a mix for patients and nurses. So I created this uh, educational campaign, so to speak. Um, my business name is Wound Care Karen. So I've expanded from YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. I'm still learning TikTok. Um, and then a couple of years ago, also I added podcasting to it. And so folks can see me on all those platforms. Uh, again, my business name is Wound Care Karen. So you are an expert master in this field. Um, you've done this for a long time. Mm -hmm. When did you hear about Awaken Walking ICUs and why was that important to you? Well, it's almost embarrassing to say because I, I had never even heard of the concept until April of this year, 2023. I was listening to my favorite podcast, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and she had you on as a guest. And that's when you talked about this concept of the awake and walking ICU. And at first I thought, okay, maybe I didn't hear the podcast correctly. So I actually listened to it again. And then I went on your website and learn more. And then I started listening to your podcast. And it just, I was just gobsmacked because, oh my gosh, it was just such a game changer for me. Be because as a wound care nurse, my um, most difficult patients or the patients with the worst pressure injuries are from extended stays in ICUs. I mean, hands down, it so beats them to, all. Even if they come from, compared to those that come from nursing homes or are at home, but require full-time caregiving, yes. always worse in the ICU. Just just numbers wise. Yes. Comparatively. Yes. Okay, the volume of patients that develop mm -hmm. pressure injuries. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's really, that's actually not what I expected. I knew that they were bad in the ICU, but I assumed that they were worse in other settings where mm -hmm. care, I would perceive care to be worse. Right. Right. But maybe and, there and, are more risk factors in the and ICU. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yes. I mean, there are bad pressure injuries that occur in, in, in homes and in skilled nursing facilities, et cetera. But I think you've touched on something there. I think it's all the other factors that go into an extended ICU stay for sure. So and that's ICU why when I heard about uh, that, you're actually able to get sedated patient, well, take them off sedation and you're actually able to get intubated patients up and walking. That's why I was so excited. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to help her shout this from the rooftops. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So I was at um, NTI, a mm-hmm. big nursing conference, critical care nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a class for quality improvement and everyone had their phones. They were connected to a program that pr- puts up these responses onto a projector. And the question was asked to all these critical care nurses, nurse managers, um, let's walk through the process of quality improvement. What is something that your teams need to work on? And this is in 2021. So we were still, you know, muddling through COVID and the vast majority of responses were happies, hospital Mm -hmm. acquired pressure injuries, Mm -hmm. which made my heart hurt because I did a previous episode with one of our wound care nurses from this awakened walking ICU and the pressure injury rate um, in the ICU was less than 1%. So I was astonished to see that most people are really fixated on happies. And and it is Mm -hmm. a big problem when you have sedated patients. So the next question was, what kind of interventions would you implement to improve this? And there were all these great responses about turning alarms, turning teams, mattresses, things like that, which I think are fine, but mm-hmm. there was not one proposal about early mobility or sedation cessation or awakening trials or the ADF bundle. Nothing about mobility was mentioned. Yes. And it just it broke my heart. And I thought we had this huge problem going on in our facilities. As I'm consulting with teams, one of my first um, gap analysis questions is, what are your happy rates? And it is astonishing to see how high they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of work that can go into preventing them. But that's the key is that it is so much work to prevent them when you have patients sedated and immobilized. So yes. tell me from your perspective and what you know, what are some of the main causes of hospital-acquired pressure injuries in the ICU? Yeah, it... To me, there's two major, major causes that come from uh, hoppies in the ICU or cause it. The first one is the immobility, hands down. Uh, Humans were not built to just lay in one place for any extended amount of time. We were built literally to be up and walking, actually. And the second one is malnutrition. And they go hand in hand. So even if someone is is up and walking, but they have poor nutrition, they're at very high risk of getting a pressure injury. Even if they're completely immobile, but they have excellent nutrition, they're gonna get a pressure injury. So so those two go very hand in hand. Um, and I think most nurses do understand how pressure injuries develop. I think they understand, you know, it's usually from a bony prominence, it's laying on the same surface for too long, but I don't think that they realize how short of a time that that may be for someone. And now the data, it varies. I've seen different sources, they say it can occur within one to four hours to five hours, but that's an average. And so, That's why so many nursing protocols say turn the patient every two hours or turn them every one hour. It's because they're working on that average, right? But that's a range. And if you take your sickest patients, which they're in the ICU, right? Then guess what end of the range they're going to be? They're going to be at that one hour range or perhaps even a half hour they might develop an ulcer. That might be all it takes because of all the other comorbidities, the malnutrition, um, poor circulation, 
Do you have them on pressers? Are you proning them? I mean, just all the other things, the fluid overload, you know, think of those patients that when you touch them, they're already wet and clammy. Um, All of that, it just stands to reason that they are a very high risk of developing tissue injury, probably within the one hour range of immobility, right? So there are sickest most, yeah, yeah, sickest most vulnerable patients. And, And you and I, touched upon this when you were a guest on my podcast, because I want to clarify something because sometimes patients or even their loved ones ask me, um, well, why don't, why don't I get a pressure sore at night? Because I sleep for seven hours in the same position and I don't move for seven hours. And, and I beg to differ with them because as we talked about, um, when patients are sedated in the ICU, they're not sleeping. Please don't make that mistake, right? It's not a restful, natural sleep like you and I get every night. So, you know, when you and I sleep at night, it's a natural, restful sleep. And our body has autonomic reflexes, which are just naturally moving us all the time. We don't realize it. We, it's kind of like your heart beating. You don't have to think about it to make it happen, but it's, it's making you bend your knee a little bit. It makes, makes you move your elbow a little bit, tiny little movements throughout the night that you aren't even aware of. Even if you wake up in the same major position that you were in when you fell asleep, trust me throughout that night, six, seven, eight hours, however long you sleep, your body has made little micro movements all the time in a way to prevent That's why people don't get pressure ulcers, you know, in their own homes at night while they're sleeping. Whereas the artificially sedated patient, those autonomic reflexes are turned off. The body is not moving for them without them thinking about it. And then add artificial paralysis to it, right? So that they can't even move their body, even if they weren't sedated, if they're paralyzed, they literally cannot make that movement and take that pressure off that area. So uh, there are fancy beds. There are, there are amazing beds and mattresses that are made. Some beds are so fancy, they'll even turn the patient, you know, shift them a couple of degrees and you can set them to every 15 minutes, half hour, hour, whatever you think. Um, but, but again, it's not the cure. The cure is mobility. Right. Again, like you said, all these little tools we have are just trying to sometimes I feel like we're Sisyphus just trying to push that little rock up the hill. You know, it, it's it's just too much to bear sometimes. So, um, you know, fancy beds and mattresses, they, they have their place, but they are not a replacement for early mobility, hands down for sure. And I think you're always going to have exceptions to which patients have to be sedated. Um, yes. And that's where tools like turn alarms may may come into play. Um, mm-hmm. But it is concerned that we would standardize that for everybody. And I think it's a lot of work. I think it's a lot of work to turn someone every hour, oh. two hours. Um, you know, when you have these large adult bodies, uh, we have our ceiling lifts, but I'm seeing that that's very variable in facilities. Not everyone has access right. to that. Not every room has that. So we're putting a lot on our teams to turn these patients every two hours, but their lives may depend on it if they're sedated. Absolutely. But how much work could we avoid? How much harm could we avoid if we just allowed them to wake up and mobilize and help them preserve the ability to shift themselves, to turn themselves? 
Um, and patients are more comfortable when they get can get into the position that they prefer. Mm-hmm. It's really hard and they lose the ability to lift a finger, yet they mm-hmm. want to get off. But now they can feel, you know, now they're desedated mm-hmm. and um, they can feel that that pressure needs to be relieved. Now they're too weak to relieve that pressure. I mean, that's got to be torture, right? Like it's an itch on your nose that you can't scratch. Yes. Absolutely. And we all have a favorite um, sleeping position, right? I, I sleep on my same side every night. Yes. And to not be able to, to to do that or to not be able to even communicate that, you know, and here we are trying to turn them on the right side, but they're left side sleepers normally. And so even, even, even if they do get some sleep, true sleep in the ICU, it's probably not a restful, restoring sleep like the body was made to have. And I like to ask patients, how do you like to sleep? I've had Many patients sleep on their side. We yes. had we heard from in a previous episode a nurse that was intubated, and she yes. slept on her side with a yanko in her hand. She was able to suction her own mouth during the night. I mean, there's so much more we can do, mm-hmm. um, and it's amazing impact that it can make on preventing hoppies. Yes. So how how like tell us why it's so important to prevent them? I think sometimes we get this very narrow insight into the, someone's life just in those few weeks that they're in the ICU. So Mm -hmm. why are we so obsessed with hoppies? How do these pressure injuries impact even just their course during the hospital admission? Right. There's so many factors. Unfortunately, you know, developing a pressure injury, it, it just complicates and usually extends the stay. It adds so many burdens. It adds, first of all, it adds a burden to your metabolic needs, right? Because now your body um, needs more nutrition to heal that wound, right? So now we're adding that need. Um, It adds a burden to your fluid balance because now you have wounds, you know, we're, we're really just bags of fluid, right? So, but now you have a hole in your bag and your fluid is draining out of it. So now you have to resuscitate by giving that patient more fluids, right? Um, it adds a risk of infection. And that by, might be simply, you know, localized like cellulitis, or it could even go systemic like sepsis. So then you're adding an antibiotic, which then disrupts the body's natural microbiome, right? Which then leads to diarrhea, which then leads to more fluid loss and now a hygiene burden. I mean, it's just, I mean, when you, when you think about it, it, it's just the snake eating its tail. It just goes on and on and on and on all these little burdens that, and that's a single pressure injury. What if you have more than one, right? What if you have a sacral and heal, you know, it just, it just adds up. It's like dominoes. Really. How common do you know how common it is to have more than one. I mean, if one's caused by certain variables, is it common to have multiple happen because of those same variables? Um, prior to COVID, I would have said, no, that's really unusual to have more than one pressure ulcer. <laughs> so many of my answers have changed after, after COVID. Um, uh, COVID um, was such a blip on our radar. People were so much more sick and um, they're metabolic rates were just through the roof and we were proning them. Right. Right. So, so because of COVID and specifically with COVID, that's when we started seeing patients with multiple pressure injuries. And so we, we saw patients who had sacral and facial injuries. I mean, that's just, that had been unheard of before COVID. Um, We saw a lot of patients with buttock and heel injuries and again, I think it just spoke to the, the, the 
severity of the illness, the, the malnutrition, it was always, again, the longer their stay, the worse their injuries. I mean, it was just, that was just parallel, you know, it was so easy to tell. Um, and we learned a lot about nutrition during COVID. Yes. Right. We had a lot of amazing nutrition research come out showing that obese patients, especially were hypermetabolic yes. during with COVID. Uh, so there is, I think, some persistent misinformation, misunderstandings that I'm still seeing at the bedside where we have obese patients. We assume that they're going to catabolize their adipose first. And so there's like right. this false sense of security that we can address nutrition down, down the road that maybe it's time for them to go on a diet mm. while they're in the ICU when really they're going to lose their muscle first. Yes. Um, and when they're sick, I mean, we just looked at COVID, but this is happening during sepsis and other conditions mm -hmm. in which obese patients are hypermetabolic and need, especially need more nutrition. So I would invite um, the listeners to explore more about that in episodes 64 and 111 mm -hmm. of the podcast, because this is all intertwined. So I don't want to go without really touching on nutrition, but it, there it's its own topic. It's vast, but it absolutely circles back to pressure injuries that result from malnutrition. I agree. And just to speak to that, even as an outpatient, again, I, I run an outpatient wound care department and many of our patients, as you can imagine, are um, either obese or morbidly obese. And I would venture to say 98% of those are malnourished. So again, I know again goes against you know the initial oh they're 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 well fed right no they're not they're actually malnourished they they have the wrong the wrong type of nutrition in their body yeah absolutely and then it's going to make mobility harder when they lose that muscle first they're going to be less likely to mobilize promptly and it, it just it, it's an exponential problem. Oh, absolutely. Because then they're at higher risk of falls, then they fall and break a bone, then add, you know, an ORIF to the mix. It just goes on and on. Yeah. So when patients develop pressure injuries in the ICU, how does that set them up for the rest of the ICU and where, where are they likely to go after the ICU? Right. This is, it's so impactful. So most of the time, the wound a pressure injury that a patient develops in the ICU requires extra care and support afterwards. And many times this prevents the patient from going home. Very often they have to go to either a long-term acute care, the LTAC facilities, or a skilled nursing facility. And so then this can add weeks or sometimes months onto their already extended hospitalization. And I just, I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine being away from your home, from what you know, for, for weeks, sometimes months on end? I mean, it's, it's just so impactful. And it's like the longer you're stuck in the hospital, the less you're going to move, the more at risk you are developing delirium and hospital acquired infections. I mean, it just, it's like this ball and chain. You get a pressure yes. injury and you're stuck and you're going to be vulnerable to all the other insults. Well, even worse, happened. it's like a snowball. Yes, yes. Where it just adds up and adds up and adds up. And by the end, you're left with this huge, how, how do you overcome that? It's so much harder to bounce back after having developed a pressure injury in the ICU. You're lucky to be alive. Don't get me wrong. It's great that, that your life was saved because, you know, most of our ICU patients, they're, you know, they're one foot in the grave. You're very lucky to be alive. But believe me, it's having a, a wound is such a burden to patients. It really, really is. It's pretty amazing to 
look at these patients, then rewind and look back to what happened mm -hmm. upon arrival to the ICU or upon intubation. What started this? And then to question, was that unavoidable? Mm -hmm. When we have so very few real indications for sedation, mm -hmm. are we unnecessarily setting patients up for this and our teams and our clinicians for all the extra work and burden mm -hmm. um, that happens and also to be, to be deprived of seeing them have good outcomes, successfully walking out of the ICU and really going home. It's, mm -hmm. What kind of emotional burden does this add to teams when patients develop pressure injuries? Right, right. That's got that's got to be hard. Just knowing going to work every day and struggling with that. And you're right, knowing that the patient whose life you saved is also still going to have a very long road ahead of them because of their delirium, their pressure injuries, their acute kidney injuries that they still need to recover from when they leave your unit. Yeah, for sure. Big, big difference. And I don't think many of us really understand what that journey looks like after. I mean, you do outpatient. Mm -hmm. What is it like for these survivors that finally do make it out of the hospital, but still have pressure injuries to heal? Right. So wounds can take months and sometimes years to heal. And sometimes people are very shocked to hear that. But I have a perfect example. Um, we're seeing a patient, he's in his early 40s, and he barely survived COVID. He, he was on multi-system failure, but he did. He survived. Now he has, you know, end-stage renal. He has other problems um, that he sustained, again, during his extended stay um, while recovering from COVID. But he developed such a horrible sacral pressure injury that has required now three surgeries because of course the bone got infected and the surgery and then, oh, we didn't get it all. And he has required, you know, three different surgeries. He's had to quit work. His spouse had to quit work to help take care of him. Uh, he, he maxed out all of his insurance benefits, his, his um, skilled nursing days, and then eventually even his home health days. So much so that now, he, you know, his spouse, has to take care of him. She's now his nurse and his his driver, his, you know, she's his full-time caregiver. And this was a young, healthy man just going about day-to-day, -day, living his life without any pre-COVID conditions. That's how impactful it is. Now, that that's an extended case, I understand, but he's not the only case, right? He, you know, he, he's, he's not an outlier. Um, we see this a lot. Um, so patients go home with a wound and, and again, it, the burden on everyday living, if, if they have a, if they had a job before their illness, they're either still on, you know, disability or sometimes again, they just call it quits. I don't, I don't see my else ever being able to go back. It impacts their spouses, their families. Sometimes children then end up having to be caregivers, you know? Oh, well, dad, dad's in a wheelchair. So now I have to reach things from the cupboard form or I need to help him in the bathroom. And, you know, it's just so impactful. It impacts every aspect of your living, every hour of your day. And when this is happening in congruent with hospital acquired weakness or ICU acquired weakness, yes. I mean, how do you really heal from a pressure injury until you're mobile enough to really stay off of that spot? Exactly. So 
If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. What does it take to heal an injury, right? It literally takes a village. It takes a lot. It's, it's so many factors. First, if you have a pressure injury, the very first thing you have to make sure is that you are, aren't still getting pressure at that site. And that may sound easy, but what if your pressure injury was on your sacrum? Well, every time you sit, you're, you're either worsening your wound or, or it's at very least stable. It's You're not going to heal a wound if you're sitting on it, literally. So if you have a sitting type wound, and that's either on the sacrum or on the ischiums. So like, you know, think when you're when you're at the bleachers at a football stadium and you sit on the, right, the hard bleachers, you feel it on your ischiums. If you have wounds there, then, then you can't sit. And so those patients, very often, we have to put them on bed rest. Can you imagine being at home on bed rest? It's, it's, it's so, so difficult. So, that, what you, so number, I mean, but then you especially get weak and you're especially yes. dependent and then you are at high risk of developing other pressure injuries. Absolutely. I mean, where is it? How do you get out of there? Yes. Yes. So I, and I'm not done. <laughs> okay. Right. So there, that's the pressure component. So you might need a special cushion for your chair or your wheelchair. You might need a special mattress or a mattress overlay. Um, if it's on, if you have a wound on your foot, like the back of your heel or the side of your bunion or or a little bunionette, you might need special shoes. It, it's just amazing. Then you also need optimum nutrition. Now, who among us gets optimum nutrition, right? And that's just to live. So folks with wounds need extra protein and extra vitamin C and zinc and all the components that go with healing. So that takes time and money. And do we, then we also, sometimes do we sometimes keep feeding tubes in people to ensure that we get that optimal nutrition? I'm just thinking yes. these people from the ICU, they're so weak. Mm-hmm. Do they have the ability to swallow? Do they have the drive? Do they have the cognition to really have that level of intake that they need? Or do we keep them on enteral feeds for longer because of this wound? Absolutely. And and in my opinion, I think some folks should probably sometimes I think we pull the tube too soon, right? Because so even if they are, um, they think they can eat and no, I want to eat but pleasure foods and everything. It's probably not a hundred percent of their needs. So let's, you know, let them have their pleasure foods, let them eat that, but let's do the extra supplements then also in the tubes for sure. Absolutely. And another thing. So along with pressure relief and nutrition, then you have to see, do they have any other comorbidities 
And then we have to op optimize all of those. For example, are they diabetic? Okay, they are. So now we really need to make sure they have good glucose control because if you have high blood sugars, your wound is not going to heal. Your, your body's on fire. It's on crisis. It's going to keep your brain and your heart alive. It's not going to heal that wound on your bottom. So super important. If they're a cardiac patient, we have to maximize their cardiac efficiency. If they're a lymphedema patient, so they have a lot of swelling, we have to add compression therapy to keep the swelling out, right? Um, if they have PAD, peripheral arterial disease, we have to make sure they've seen their vascular specialist and that their op circulation is optimized, right? So all those things go into wound healing. It's not just one, it's not just wound uh, special dressings. You notice I didn't even mention dressings, right? Because all these other things are, are just as important. Wound healing is like, like spokes on a wheel. And if any one of those spokes are broken, whether it be nutrition or offloading or, or diabetic control, then, then the wheel is broken and that wound is not going to heal. So it, it takes a village. It takes an entire team. I'm yeah, I'm just trying to think of the team and you got obviously home health nurses, you have wound care nurses, you've got to have home physical therapists. I mean, if these patients make it home, but this is a lot mm -hmm. of monitoring and care. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm imagining the patients that have developed ICU acquired weakness and they're so profoundly weak. Um, yes. And then a lot of times the patients that are most vulnerable that develop those the most, do they have the kind of family support? Do they have the medical literacy to really right. be vigilant with these interventions? Yeah, and, and, and very often not. And so very often those folks do end up in facilities, whether that be long-term acute care. And again, that's if they qualify and if their insurance covers it, or very often it's skilled nursing facilities. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that, that ends up also being hard on the ICUs. Because mm -hmm. you fill up those facilities with your survivors and then your next round of survivors can't get there. And so you're stuck. Either they're stuck in the ICU or the medical floor. Um, so we might feel like we can punt them off to someone else and that it's no longer our problem. But it is. It is definitely our problem. Yes, for sure. It's like a, a conveyor belt in a in a factory or facility, right? If, you know, if the things keep adding up, then the whole belt gets slowed down for sure. And we saw that so clearly during COVID. And I think our communities are still suffering the, the effects of that. We yeah, still I, don't I have good outpatient or out or nursing home to, uh, resources to support our hospitals. In many ways, I think it's gotten worse. Absolutely. Yeah. Be because of the, um, I'll be honest, the mass exodus from nursing, um, to be honest. So, um, so many nurses are leaving the field. Um, that's putting a strain on on the entire healthcare system for sure. Absolutely. And I think this is, these are all things that we need to consider when we're just deciding whether or not to sedate a patient. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it may be easy for that moment to get through our one shift, but it's setting us up, even us personally, I'm not just talking about our teams, mm -hmm. but if I, as a nurse, am looking for an easy shift today, mm -hmm. it's going to fall on someone, the grenade is going to explode on someone later to desedate the patient, to liberate mm -hmm. the patient from sedation and then deal with the delirium. And then it's, it's going to be my shift taking care of the same now LTAC patient that's stuck in the ICU for weeks to come. And ICU nurses don't want to do that. That's not why they mm -hmm. got into the critical care medicine. They really wanted the initial exciting things and the critical illness. But once it becomes more of a chronic illness, mm -hmm. 
we're kind of turned off. We're kind of done with it. But when it comes to wounds, there's no way out. You've got to just keep treating them. And if they can't get to a facility, they're yours. We made that patient and we get to treat that patient for weeks to months. For sure. Yeah. So then what happens if, I mean, patients, even if they make it home, Mm -hmm. they've lost their jobs, they've, their family relationships have been impacted, their, even their spouse's careers have been impacted, their financial. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's if ability. the marriage survives, you know, so very often this puts a strain on relationships. And we've seen it many a time that the marriage itself does not survive. Having a wound just places a huge burden on the quality of life. And sometimes it's a pain, literally pain from the wounds. Imagine having that kind of pain all the time. Um, That can lead to depression, which itself leads to, you know, down a rabbit hole. Um, The smell, if I can be honest, uh, I've never... Smelled, I've never smelled a wound that smelled good, right? I mean, the, the odor sometimes from yeah. the wound dressings, it's so embarrassing to patients. So then they isolate themselves. I know several patients who don't go to church. They won't go to restaurants. They don't invite their family and friends over because they're so conscious of the smell of their wound. Um, so we do work with them to try to find um, their like charcoal dressings or special dressings or just, you know, increasing the frequency of dressing change. But that itself, it can just be so embarrassing. Um, It it limits your activity. Like I said, if if you have a wound on your buttock and you can't sit, well, that that severely limits your activity. Um, Or if you have a wound on your foot and you can't play golf like you used to. I mean, it just, it limits everything you used to do before. The hobbies you used to do, you enjoyed, whether that was walking, gardening, uh, even just, like I said, going to church, it, it limits that. So many people have to either take time off work or quit their jobs because of their wounds. It is so super impactful and and not all families survive. Like I said, very often um, the, the marriage um, does not survive something like that. And again, it, it very often places a burden on children, regardless of their age. We take care of patients who, you know, have minor children who um, take an active role in, in their parents chronic illness out of need out of necessity and i understand it and i'm not saying it's a wrong thing but that's how impactful a wound can be um to a family and sometimes those are things we don't think about um but i see it it it's, happens day after day after day wow no it's uh, i think in the icu we're thinking i'm treating i'm treating pneumonia mm-hmm. and sepsis but really we're treating a family we're treating mm-hmm. the patient in the moment, but we're treating their future as well. I mean, that's that's high pressure. That's a big deal. But I think those are insights that we don't really get because I think sometimes for me, at least it's out as I had in mind. But then I think I assume that outpatient resources will help them get back on their feet and it'll take a few days, weeks, months, but they're going to get back to it. It's almost never as fast as we hope. I'll be honest. And and very often the patient's very first question when they come to meet us during their evaluation is, um, you know, when will I be healed, doc? How long will this take? You know, and um, that's that's a hard guess for us. It really is, especially um, 
that first visit because we don't know the patient at all. We don't even know their capacity to heal. Um, and like I said, there's so many other factors, their nutrition, their diabetes, their cardiac status, their circulation status. So that's very often a question we don't answer on the first visit. After a couple of visits in, then we have actually some data, you know, hey, it's it's week three and you're 40 percent healed. You know, then then we have um, some more data points we can play off of. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a guessing game as far as how how long it'll take a patient to heal. Occasionally we'll get a surprise and someone will be healed in a week or two. And and that's amazing. And we celebrate with them. Um, but those are outliers that, that very rarely happens. We we're normally looking at weeks to months. Wow. And the ICU sometimes, I mean, oftentimes we're saying, well, we're, we just got to get them to survive. Mm-hmm. All we can focus on is, is survival. And I think that's a mentality that inspires us to sedate patients. Mm. It's like, we got to get control of everything else. So let's just sedate them. And then we'll work on the mobility and all the things later when they've survived. But how do pressure injuries impact mortality? Right. Oh my gosh. So I can't, I don't think I can overstate this, but having a pressure injury, just even just one, it totally increases the chance of mortality in in so many ways. Let me explain why. One of the most obvious, of course, is the risk of infection, right? That's what we're always worried about. Once you have a little nick, any kind of hole in the skin, you know, they're at risk for infection, which of course, in an ill person, in someone with comorbidities can easily lead to sepsis. So very scary. You know, sepsis is is just so dangerous. Um, I'm sure you and I both know many, many patients who did not survive sepsis. So having a wound is such an increased tax on the body. When you mix it with other comorbidities, sometimes you just can't recover like a otherwise healthy person would. For example, if an otherwise healthy active person would drop down with a heart attack, their chance of survival is actually quite quite good, you know, if caught early enough and with all the interventions. But if that same person, let's say they gotten out of the ICU three months earlier and they still have a pressure injury, now they drop down out of a heart attack. They're going to have a harder time rebounding from that heart attack, again, because of the increased metabolic demands from their wound, right? So it, again, it's like I said, it's it's like the snowball effect. It really just adds up to the burden on the body. Our bodies are amazing and we're our bodies are always healing ourselves and trying to achieve homeostasis. So most patients with wounds The body wants to heal it. It wants to try. But when we tax it so much with so many other problems like immobility and fluid overload, malnutrition, and now we're adding wounds to it, um, we're hurting their kidneys because of what we're giving to them. When we tax it with so many other things, it's really hard for a body to bounce back from that. So that just adds to the mortality rate for sure. And Karen, I'm just thinking medications like propofol is a mitochondrial toxin. Mm. I don't know if we have any clear research on how that impacts wound healing, Mm -hmm. but it's got to impact cellular regeneration. Absolutely. And, but if we're continuing to give propofol, we're continuing to be toxic to the mitochondria, Mm -hmm. are we causing and or exacerbating these wounds Immobility aside, 
just from disrupting or, or killing the mitochondria. Right. To me, I mean, theoretically, that, that just makes sense. I mean, it, it can't be good for wounds if you already have them. And, and you're right. It may even predispose someone to wounds for sure. Immobility aside. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrific. And, and same thing with, with pressors. Um, you know, so much of that, the circulation gets um, shunted, of course, to the heart and brain. Again, keeping them alive. I get it. Mm-hmm. But but very often uh, we get ICU patients with, you know, black fingers and toes. And again, I get it. They're alive. But now um, now the patient is left dealing with those wounds. And it usually leads to limb loss, hopefully just a digit or partial digit. But very often it leads to further amputation. And, yeah. and of course, always at risk for infection the whole time. And not that sedation is the culprit of all evil. But we saw during COVID that a lot of sedation or a lot of vasopressors were being given to compensate for the sedation that was being given. Um, in the wake walking ICU during COVID, less than half their patients, rough estimate, had central lines because they were hemodynamically stable because they were off sedation. So it's it's all it just it affects everything. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, oftentimes, the the dispute is, well, We can't move our patients because we don't have enough people because we don't have enough resources. Mm. So how do we how can we use hospital acquired pressure injuries to advocate for those resources? What's the financial cost of pressure injuries on our system? So I tried to research this and it's like going down a rabbit hole that no one wants to go down. (laughs) And um, so essentially Whatever in your mind you think the cost is, um, go ahead and triple that or quadruple that. I mean, it's just crazy. So just as a baseline, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the AHRCQ, right? They estimate that pressure injuries cost the United States $11 billion per year. And that's billion with a B, which just blows my mind. Now, sometimes those numbers don't mean anything to me. I'm like, well, what does that mean to my patient? So then I look, I drill it down and I personally look at the patients that I know. Um, average after hospital costs, I'm not, count, I'm not counting the hospital costs. So once they leave the hospital and they um, become an outpatient and they come to me, Depending on the stage of the pressure injury or the severity or, again, how many of them they have, the costs can run from thousands to tens of thousands to sometimes even over $100,000 because sometimes injuries are so severe they need surgeries or sometimes multiple surgeries like we've talked about um, and advanced wound care techniques such as negative pressure wound therapy that is costly. It is so very expensive. Now it's a game changer and I swear by it. I love negative pressure wound therapy, but it is extremely costly. Sometimes patients need hyperbaric oxygen. Again, I'm certified in it. I swear by it, but also very, very costly. These are advanced wound healing techniques that um, again, have high healing rates, but the cost comes with them. And we're talking, again, tens of thousands, sometimes upwards of over $100,000 per patient easily. And I saw one one study showed looked at um, the cost of claims against hospitals, Mm -hmm. not just direct patient care costs, Mm -hmm. but if survivors, because pressure injuries are declared as a never event, right? Never never event, yes. Mm -hmm. So 
if it happens, like there's some grounds for malpractice. So mm-hmm. it, the average um, claim costs a hospital two hundred thousand dollars. Oh, I and I think that's probably lowballing it. Yes, really, I I totally agree. Totally agree. And that's Absolutely. not direct cost. So if if pressure injuries happen, then hospitals are liable. They 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 have to cover the cost of treating that patient and any kind of complications and the whole everything that happens from then on out is on the yes. hospital essentially, right? So Medicare and Medicaid insurances say that happened because your poor care, we're not covering it. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, they get to cover the legal fees yes. when that happens. So it's they should be very vigilant about making sure they never happen. Um, and the main key is to keep patients awake and mobile. I, I totally agree. Thousand percent. And, and those costs that I talked about, you know, the upwards of a hundred thousand, again, that's just for costs of, um, like services. That's not the cost of, um, supplies. Um, very often I have a few patients who their insurance does not cover the cost of home health. And I have a few patients who their medical insurance does not cover the cost of their medical supplies. So all of those items, if they're able to, are out of pocket for them, which blows my mind, which they're not as cheap. You, no, as, as most people know, the cost of medical supplies is so expensive. So a couple of years ago, I was pursuing my undergraduate degree, my, my bachelor's. And as part of my capstone project, um, I developed a, a resource sheet to give to those kind of patients. And it had some resources on it. Uh, for example, um, here's some local pharmacies and DMEs that might might work with you and, you know, on a, a give you some discounts. Here's um, we have a local charity. I live in San Antonio. We have a local charity who who refurbished wheelchairs and crutches and scooters and stuff like that. So, I, you know, had that on the resource sheet. Um, we have some free medical clinics and places to get free medicines. I put that on the resource sheet. Um, but that's how bad it is that I had to make a resource sheet. You know, I, it's just the as we're all aware, sometimes people go into medical debt, right? You know, they have to declare bankruptcy, medical bankruptcy because of all of their medical bills, um, nutritional supplements. It's so easy to say, oh, no, I'll go out and get this fancy nutritional protein supplement, but can they afford it? Most of my patients cannot, wow. you know, so, so we end up just saying, look, you know, buy some eggs and beans, you know, if, if that's what you can afford, that's excellent source of protein or even, you know, a, an instant breakfast drink that's got just as much protein in it. You know, you don't need this brand name. So things like that, you, it, it all adds up and, and healthcare can nickel and dime you to death. So um, it's just an added, just an added cost for sure. So oh, man, I, I was just uh, in a financial meeting with a bunch of hospital executives and I was trying to explain why it's so expensive when nurses turn up sedation to go answer mm-hmm. a phone <laughs> or yes. to go work with their other patient. I mean, how, how much of a, an investment or huge return investment is it to have a sitter at the bedside or a mobility tech or some of these kind mm-hmm. of um, low skill positions, mm-hmm. huge investments. If we can avoid, use them to avoid sedation, keep patients mobile, the return on investment is just so profound, but this is not what they're thinking about when they make a decision as to whether or not to staff their teams in a certain way to invest in mobility techs. I mean, this exact hospital had let go of some physical therapists before I showed up. 
Oh my God. And I don't think they realize how expensive that decision is. I agree. They can't see the forest for the trees because if you, if you cut staffing, so you're not only not getting that patient up, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you're also not turning them every hour. Right. So again, you're just adding to all the cascading injuries that come from immobility and it's going to cause extended stays and it's going to cost your hospital. And then when the patient leaves and realize they probably shouldn't have developed that stage three pressure ulcer, they're going to, you know, find a lawyer and then they're going to sue the hospital, you know? And so the, whatever, 60 grand a year that the hospital saved by, by cutting an FTE, you know, they're going to pay it out quadruple in the end. And I think the public's going to know more and more. So, I mean, pressure injuries are kind of a low hanging fruit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the public is going to know and be more aware of the reality of sedation. Mm -hmm. So if they were wrongfully sedated and these complications happened, our hospitals is going to start being held more accountable for failing to practice the ABCDF bundle. And our happy is going to be grouped into that um, discussion to say, and I developed a wound that probably wouldn't have happened had I not been sedated without an indication for sedation. So we, we really worry about liabilities. And I don't think, I don't think clinicians personally should be liable for this, mm-hmm. but we worry about liabilities like unplanned extubations and falls that our licenses are on the line, but what if hospitals and even personal clinicians were on the line for these kind of practices um, that end up I, increasing mortality and harm? I agree, but also um, I think the tide is turning. I think we clinicians are starting to be held sometimes criminally liable for what we had normally done in practice. For example, um, you know, me- medical errors, et cetera. And so um, I I wouldn't be surprised uh, down the road uh, seeing someone, uh, clinicians, whether it be, again, nurses, physical therapists, intensivists, being held liable, maybe not criminal, but at least civil, um, for, again, not following the ABCDEF bundle, for sure. Uh, I'm not sure why that tide is turning, and it... um, makes me uncomfortable, but, but, you know, we also can't ignore the elephant in the room, right? We, I think we're um, all becoming targets yeah. and I encourage everyone to get their own liability license and, uh, and protect yourself. But again, all the more reason to advocate for early mobility. Absolutely. You, you never think- go wrong by being a patient advocate. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I, and I was in a discussion with a group of respiratory therapists as we were about to embark on working with a team. And the very valid question was asked, um, will I lose my license if something happens during mobility? Mm-hmm. And they should never feel that way. We should never say, will I, will I lose my license for practicing evidence-based medicine? Wow. That should never be part of the discussion. Um, unfortunately, it, it is right now. And so I think that's a whole nother discussion to be had. But yeah, that's a whole nother podcast, isn't it? <laughs> right. But but I, I was able to say, well, the evidence is vastly in support of ABCDEF bundle. And so um, I think liability will start to increase with failure to comply with it. Um, yes. But in the end, it's the best thing for our patients, best thing for our teams. If we're talking about workload, bed flow, financial, all the different things that make um, our hospitals run. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to look at it day one and say, how do we prevent pressure injuries from happening? And what we do today upon admission, 
is going to greatly determine the trajectory of their lives. So Karen, totally thank you so much for all you do for the community. I invite everyone to listen to her podcast. I'll put the um, link to it in the show notes. Check it out. Thank She's you. a obviously a fountain of knowledge in all things wound care. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.